Welcome back to the Fourth Way Podcast. This episode is an interview with my friend Ron Schultes. Ron has studied and worked in politics for a long time and has a lot of real-world examples of politics in action. I get an opportunity to talk with Ron about what a free society would actually look like and how capitalism often gets a bad rap. It's a bit of a lengthy interview, so check out the show notes for some timestamps if you'd prefer to skip to specific topics. Without further ado, here is Ron. So I think what might be the most helpful for you, because I know we've talked a bit about politics, and you you recommended a lot of resources that I, I uh, was able to, to go through a lot of them, not every mm-hmm. single one. Um, but I, I haven't really explained to you kind of my journey the past maybe a couple of years. Um, sure. So I part of what kind of has driven me to government, and, and I think you've probably experienced this a lot, the 2016 election and just that, uh, like throwing throwing a wrench into my moral system mm. and, and uh, just doing a lot of questioning about who I was, who my group was, what it means to be a Christian, um, that kind of stuff. Well, I actually, I actually kind of came to the conviction of, of nonviolence um, first, and, and I'm very convinced of that. Um, but then for me, what was very difficult, like as I read the early church fathers and as I, I did more reading into kind of later expounders like Aiden Balu and Tolstoy and all that, um, I was like, Oh, there, there are really big implications for government. If, if you're nonviolent, um, because I mean, legislation has sword behind it. Um, every, every law has sword behind it. Um, so I, I really, I really started thinking a lot about that and kind of doing some research and talking to, to different people and, and all of that kind of stuff and, uh, doing a lot of research on history and kind of uncovering a really unpleasant, uh, glossed over history that we have in the United States, you know, where we, I mean, we're very big into like George Washington and the, the cherry tree and like, um, I don't know. Are you familiar with the apotheosis 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 uh, of washington uh no i'm not <clears throat> okay yeah it's uh it's this i think it's the capitol building it's one of the the big buildings there like in the dome they basically have like george washington becoming a god like going up and being seated oh, with yeah. the gods and so it like th- there are very religious uh overtones and undertones in um in all, not just the United States, but yes, even the United States, right. though we would like to, to think that it's not. So, um, yeah, I I want you to to discuss today um, to to kind of help push back because you listened to the the episode that I did with with my friend Taylor about communism, right? Mm-hmm. And and I know that that probably rubbed you the wrong way, um, and and we can talk about that tonight. Um, but, but one of the things that I was kind of discovering as I was reading people from, uh, you know, apartheid Africa or um, civil rights and Cuba and all that stuff is like, oh, the, the communists, like they have some reasons for some of the things that they're doing. And um, there are some ways in which we we have been aggressors and we have kind of undercut them. Um, and they're really not quite as bad. I mean, North Korea might be, but they're really not quite as bad and have all these malicious motivations that we might attribute to them. Hmm. And at the same time, capitalism and the United States and democracy, a lot of times we say, oh, we, we just want everybody to have democracy and be free. 
yet there are all kinds of underlying monetary or or whatever other motivations. Right. So we kind of ripped on on capitalism a little bit, and I have a lot of questions that I want you to kind of um, help me answer in regard to democracy, capitalism, um, sure. that kind of stuff. So that that's kind of the overarching idea tonight. Awesome. Well, you know, I'll just quickly add, and I don't, you know, the 2016 election was probably the best word for me was disappointing <laughs> and disheartening um, from somebody who believed like. Uh, you know, and I know we're not talking specifically into that, but I think they're very linked to one another. It's just uh, liberty and, and, and free markets, right? Obviously go hand in hand. And you can even find articles leading up to the 2016 election, like in the New York Times, talking about, is this the libertarian moment, right? And this idea that you came, we came off of Ron Paul's and then Rand was looking like uh, Rand Paul, the senator from Kentucky, was looking like a front runner for the Republican nomination and actually was looking or very early on right in the polls and all that. And so they're like, is this the moment, you know, that we're going libertarians from the first time since probably Calvin Coolidge prior to the Great Depression? And then 2016 happened and it was clearly not the case. Right. And yeah. so. Um, it was very disheartening for somebody like me as well. So, you know, I, 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 you know, have had a, probably a little, just more experience in my ideologies, you know, prior to 2016 than you did, but, um, it was, it was disheartening for, for that reason. So, <laughs> but yeah, looking and forward to tonight. Yeah. So you, you would right now consider yourself a libertarian, right? Yeah, I would. Okay. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I've I've learned, and maybe maybe I'm incorrect, but a lot of the like anarchists that I've I've talked to, you know, they have a joke which you've probably heard. Like, what's the difference between a libertarian and an anarchist? Oh, an anarchist really believes it, or whatever. Oh yeah, yeah, I've heard that one too. But the the one that I hear the most often is um, six months. You know, oh yeah, <laughs> well, we I've I've heard that joke said the other way. What's the dif- difference between a democrat and a socialist? six months or four years or whatever, you yeah. know? So yeah, <laughs> it's, yeah. It's a common yeah. joke, right? So, yeah. So I, you know, it's one of those things where I, I hear anarchist and not having the, uh, the governmental astuteness. Like I, I don't, I'm not steeped in government. I was like, you know, I have this idea of what they are, but really the more, like most of the people on my uh, Instagram feed that I, I follow are essentially libertarians and they say a lot of the same things that, that, you know, the anarchists would. Oh yeah, so. for sure. I, it, generally, the I, the difference is is you know where do you get off the bus, right? You know, <laughs> libertarians probably stop like two stops, you know, before an anarchist does. But I mean, I think going back to your initial thing about like even in the United States, we deify almost our political leaders, right? Even going back to uh, George Washington. I mean, I, I totally agree. And, you know, we as Americans have lost this initial skepticism of the state like our founding fathers originally had, right? I mean, you know, obviously we're talking about this also from a Christian perspective. I mean, Jesus talks in Matthew 20, like, you was it? You know, the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them, right? They're, they're tyrants. And, and so we have almost lost that completely today. Um, I, I love the quote by Randolph Byrne, you know, war is the health of the state, right? So, you know, I know you talk about nonviolence, right? I mean, 
government and the state is inherently violent, right? I mean, that's why think about all the major campaigns, social campaigns we've had over the past 50 years. They all use the word war, war on drugs, war on poverty, war on terrorism, right? And so these phrases are used to justify, you know, with its war on drugs, locking black people up in jail, right? To, you know, terrorism, obviously, to going and invading other countries and and bombing, you know, innocent civilians in a lot of cases. So um, I, I totally agree. <laughs> Yeah, I'm, I'm, this will have to be a side conversation some other time, but I'd be interested to know why you don't get off two stops later, you know? Uh, sure. Yeah, because, you know, all those things that you're saying, I'm like, yeah, yeah. That, so that's why I just, I can't get, I can't stay on the bus or I, I stay on the bus two more stops. Um, so I, I'd love to have that conversation, but I really want to focus on, um, you know, on the the capitalism, democracy, that kind of stuff mm-hmm. um, to kind of give give some pushback to the, the communism because- I entitled that episode, you know, communism's bad rap. Sure. But then I also see from my liberal friends, the people who in 2016, you know, you had the people who doubled down, but then you also had the people who just like completely went the opposite side. Mm-hmm. And now capitalism, free markets, uh, all that kind of stuff are just like evil. And so I want to kind of push back against that. Sure. All right. So um, I guess the place that, that I think might be helpful to start is um, when when we talked last time, it was very helpful for me to, to have you differentiate between my misperceptions of the free market that you're talking about mm-hmm. versus what the free market is like with government involvement. And, and one of the things that stands out to me is your story about Delta and 9-11 was just like that that's that is cemented in my head about like oh i see we really don't have free market so would you talk a little bit about what the the free market is and then maybe how um that's skewed now with government intervention yeah absolutely so a little bit of history in 2011 i was an aide uh in the georgia general assembly the georgia legislature i was i was an intern at the time working for the house majority rep and after 9-11, so Atlanta is a huge airport hub, right? It, it's the generally first or second for the largest commercial airport in terms of volume in the world. So, and is the main hub of Delta. And as you can imagine, after 9-11, the airline industry was completely rocked, right? Everyone was scared to fly, all of that. And so the airline industry almost went bankrupt. And so to help out the airline industry, uh, which obviously Atlanta is a, a, a huge hub for, right? Delta is the largest employer in Atlanta. The Georgia General Assembly decided to give a tax cut on, to, to cut taxes on jet fuel, essentially. So, you know, just like gas taxes that we have now, there's jet fuel taxes on jet fuel. And so to lower costs for the airlines as they were going through this difficult time, they temporarily cut for 10 years, right? Uh, the, the tax on, on gas, on jet fuel. Well, when that came up, it was the, when that was about to expire was the year that I was interning there. And so there was this huge debate about renewing that tax cut. And 
obviously the legislature knew that the airline industry had bounced back. People weren't afraid of flying anymore at that point, right? Um, and it was a huge loss of revenue for the state. And so they talked about walking it back and, and going back to the normal tax rate. Well, Delta didn't want that. And so they were lobbying to essentially be carved out. And because they were the largest employer, they had a lot of political influence, right, in, in Georgia, in Atlanta. And so what happened was, is they got it renewed, but for just them. So they were the only company that still had this cut on their jet fuel. And so they were put at an advantage by the government, right, compared to their competition. And so AirTran was also hubbed out of Atlanta, um, obviously a smaller airline, uh, had a harder time competing because of that, because their prices were always higher because of the higher taxes on the fuel that they had to use to fuel their plane. And so they were having a difficult time and were about to go under. And so they had to essentially sell the company to Southwest. So Southwest bought out AirTran in 2014, three years after uh, Delta got this unfair advantage. And so I remember at that time watching all of these legislators that I worked with really struggle because they knew it was unfair. They knew it was against the free market, right? It's one thing to cut the, the gas tax uh, on jet fuel for all airlines, right? And so it's still a level playing field, but they only did it for one. But they struggled because they knew Delta was the number one employer. They were probably, you know, a huge donor, right, to election campaigns. And, you know, Delta was giving perceived threats of leaving Atlanta if they didn't reauthorize that. Now, and so I watched them struggle, but at the end of the day, they voted to do that again for Delta. And so it was just this huge moment in my mind of watching how the government, you know, we don't have free markets and the government oftentimes actively picks winners and losers, which is antithetical to a free market, right? A government's there to pick, to, you know, to use a baseball analogy, to call balls and strikes, right? And uh, it didn't do that. And we saw a major corporation have to sell itself out because it couldn't compete because it had been put at an unfair advantage. Yeah. And that, that story reminds me, because when you told that I hadn't read Atlas Shrugged yet, mm -hmm. but that story right there, like reminds me so much of, of what goes on in that book. Um, oh yeah. And this happens all the time everywhere, just usually not on as big of a, you know, scale. So I'll give you a great example. The organization that I work for did a mini documentary a couple of years ago called Rigged the Injustices of Corporate Welfare. And when you hear that, you know, it sounds like a very lefty title, right? But I mean, if you're truly for free markets, you're truly for, you know, fairness for all, right? It, the opportunity to fairly compete based upon how good your service is. And so what we documented was, the city of Memphis was going to give eight and a half million dollars to Ikea to move, to expand to Memphis. Basically like Mem Ikea told Memphis like, yeah, we're considering expanding here, but how much money will you give us? And so they agreed to give Ikea eight and a half million dollars. 
Well, what we showed was there were was literally right across the street a family-owned furniture store that had been in Memphis for 20 years. And so we interviewed him. We we're like, hey, you know, do you have a problem with IKEA coming? And he's like, no, I understand that, you know, they've got every right to be here just as much as I do. He goes, it just sucks because now I have to pay taxes that essentially help subsidize my competition, right? And so we interviewed two small, you know, family-owned stores that weren't big enough because they weren't politically connected enough to get those same type of tax breaks, one of which went out of business. He was a guy who started, lost his job in the Great Recession and started selling mattresses out of a, a warehouse, like buying used mattresses and flipping them. He's like, hey, I think I might have a business idea. And he grew to like two stores called King's Furniture. You know, he had like 15 employees you know, worked himself off of losing a job, but then he couldn't compete anymore because, you know, obviously Ikea is a huge name brand, but also they didn't have to pay property taxes, right? Whereas he did. And so it forced him out of business. And so, I mean, everything from, if you followed in the news recently with Amazon HQ2, and I mean, you literally had cities like in a bidding war, how much money to give Jeff Bezos, right? To open HQ2. I mean, we were talking literally like a hundred million dollars, right? In a lot of cases, hundreds of millions. Um, I, Atlanta probably had the coolest idea I heard was to literally like sell off part of the city and call it the city of Amazon and essentially allow Amazon to run its own city, right? This stuff happens all the time. We just, you know, we see this and we think that's, you know, capitalism. It's it's not. It's cronyism, and so it's you know, it's governments picking winners and losers. Okay, so this this is not like a one-off example or a, a couple of like this this is all over the place. Oh, absolutely. Stuff like that. I mean, and that's not the only way, right? I mean, so I'll give you a great example. Um, one of the craziest types of laws on the books that favor certain companies over others are in the healthcare space. They're called certificate of need laws. Um, basically, it was an idea in the late 70s, I believe. There was this idea in Congress that, you know, with all this new imaging like MRI machines and everything being developed, they were afraid that hospitals and doctors' offices and all that would invest too much money into these machines. And there'd be an oversaturation of MRI machines. And so because of how expensive they were, it would cause like hospitals and doctors' offices to go belly up. And so in order to keep prices low, we have to restrict supply was literally their idea. And so they basically said, hey, states, you need to pass. They passed a law that said, hey, states, you need to pass these laws called certificate of needs where you have to prove to the government that there's a market demand for your service or product. Okay. And so it's not just like, hey, like a doctor has to take, you know, get a license to prove that he's qualified to be one. It's like, no, you need to prove that there's a shortage of doctors before we let you open a doctor's office in this zip code or in this county. Um, and so what happens is, is like, for example, in this, in these, under these laws, you can, if you're a competitor and somebody, a comp you know, somebody applies for a CON, you can say, no, I can sufficiently meet the demand for this service. And then that person's application is deny and they lose tens of thousands of dollars in application and legal fees. Well, if you can imagine, right, basic economics 101, when you restrict supply, prices go up. And so it had the opposite effect of Congress intended, shocking, 
And <laughs> in a rare feat, uh, Congress actually realized their mistake and said, hey, this is actually raising prices, not dropping prices in healthcare." So the feds repealed their mandate that states have these laws. However, the damage at that point was already done. And so about half your states now still have certificate of need laws on the books because, hey, if you have one, you are have a huge vested interest because nobody can come into your county and compete, right? I like to describe it as imagine if Chick-fil-A had to prove that there was a shortage of fried chicken in a town in, in, in order to open up a store there, right? And McDonald's, Popeye's, you know, Zaxby's could say, oh, no, we can sufficiently meet the demand for fried chicken, and so their application is denied. We would think that's utterly ridiculous and undeniably unfair, right? But this is a real thing in healthcare. So, for example, in a lot of cases, if you want to open up a, a, an emergency room, a um, outpatient surgical center, here's one, an opioid treatment center is very common. You know, I, I'm sure, you know, with the opioid epidemic that's ravaging our country, right, we could sure use some more opioid treatment centers. But in most states, you have to get a permission essentially from your competitors and able to open up. So there's all these ways that the government essentially picks winners and losers. And sometimes, I'm, you know, it's with good intentions too, right? I mean, but it creates problems and, and it picks winners and losers and we as people ultimately lose. Yeah. And, and it's, I mean, I guess it probably causes some people to go bankrupt because of the rising prices and it causes, I mean, literally people to die with the, Oh, absolutely. Epidemic. I mean, I'll give you a fantastic example. Um, I can give you a, a perf actually a real example of that. Um, there's a, a state legislator here in Tennessee that I've worked with before and, uh, he, his grandmother, I think it was, was having some kind of like cardiac issue. And he, she had to be helicoptered to a hospital. And when they landed, the hospital couldn't provide that service because they couldn't obtain a CON for that imaging thing that it needed. And so then they had to helicopter her back from outside of Jackson to Memphis, Tennessee. And, and during the time she died. And so he became very, you know, interested in getting these things off the books, right? Oncology services is very common to have CONs around where you literally can limit how many cancer treatment centers you have. I mean, but this, you know, and then we say we have a free market in healthcare, you know, so it's, it's just, it's just crazy to me. And it just goes to show you that, you know, the government gets in the way of free markets and we as people lose all the time. So... I guess my big question would be then, it seems like, so this, this isn't rare. It happens all the time. Mm -hmm. it, in even a place like the United States where we feel like it's pretty free I mean, compared to Russia, um, you know, Cuba, North Korea, all that stuff. Like, it seems like we're pretty free, mm -hmm. yet government screws things up and it's just like, it abounds all over the place. So if that's what government does to the system, again, I, I think I feel like I have a feeling we're going to keep coming back to this. Why? Why are you still on on the bus, or why did you get off two stops <laughs> before? Um, like, what purpose does government serve? Like, to what extent do you think they will not screw things up? 
so I think uh, <laughs> um, they generally always screw things up, right? I mean, the government can't deliver the mail on time, and yet we expect it to somehow fix the economy, right? I mean, um, it it happens all the time. And, you know, I think, for example, Investopedia does not describe the United States as a free free market country. It, it describes it accurately as a mixed market. So we've got a lot of capitalism aspects to it, and we also have a lot of socialism aspects to it, right? Um, in fact, there's a lot of, so there's the World Economic Freedom Index, and the United States is like 12th or 13th. There's a lot of countries that are more economically free than we are here. Who's now, number one? Do you know? Uh, usually Hong Kong or Singapore okay. are number one. Chile's usually up there. Um but, and, you know, so these problems in the system are, are everywhere. Now, I think we kind of have this reputation as the bastion of free markets. And I think we were historically, right? But over time, I, I mean, really, you can go back to, I think, since the Great Depression, we have been on a trajectory of less and less economic freedom and more and more government intervention into the economy. Um, since then, and, and we're no longer the most economically free. Now, we do have a lot more civil liberties than a lot of other places because of, you know, our Bill of Rights and other things like that. But on an economic standpoint, you know, we're, we're trending in a lot of ways in the wrong direction. So is that is that just innate to government? Like, that's the life cycle of a government when when people get power and control, however they get that, whether it's, you know, uh, you're a general in Rome and you, you have an army behind you, like physical force, or whether that's your Jeff Bezos and you have money behind you and you can buy legislation. Um, it, I mean, is, is that just how governments are going to end up? Yeah. So I think it's Thomas Jefferson that has the quote that the natural tendency of government is to grow. Right. Um, and it's inherently inefficient, inherently. And there's a reason for that. So it goes back to the simplest way I can describe it is Milton Freeman, who's a, a famous you know, uh, 20th century economist, had the theory of spending. And this is really easy to understand, and it helps explain a lot of things, why they're more expensive when the government gets involved versus not. Uh, so the first type of spending is your money on yourself, right? So when I buy something for myself, I'm going to make sure I get the best product at the best price, right? If I'm buying a gift, a gift is the second one where I'm using my money on somebody else, okay? I may not take the time to get the absolute best product, but I'm sure going to make sure that I'm being cost conscious, right? Because it's my money. The third is, is somebody else's money for yourself, right? So think of like teenage girl with daddy's credit card or something like that, right? She doesn't care how much money it is, but she's going to get the cutest t-shirt, you know, what if it's Amber Crombie versus Old Navy, because she doesn't care. It's not her money, right? And then the last, which is really how the government works, it's somebody else's money for somebody else. So you just don't have the inherent incentives, right? To make sure that it's done cost effectively and that it's a good a good product 
And so that's why it's inherently inefficient. This is why, for example, insurance is getting more and more costly in healthcare because we as consumers of healthcare are not the, the customer, right? Our employers are. And so, which was created due to government intervention, this whole weird system that we have in healthcare. And so that's where you have the, the inherent inefficiencies. And then the other thing is too, is, is that there's just that lack of competition that drives efficiency, you know, that the government doesn't have, right? It doesn't have to compete for somebody with, you know, here, here's a great example uh, with utilities usually, right? With water. I mean, look at Flint, Michigan, right? We've never had to worry about Dasani having lead in the water. We've never had to worry about Aquafina having lead in the water. Where does that happen? In government-run utility systems, right? Because it doesn't have a competition to provide those types of services. And so even if they're in, well-intended, right, it, inevitably, they're just not as good. They're just not as good in doing so. And in, you know, in many cases, right, and I know we want to get a little bit more into the moral aspect, government is the monopoly of force. So it's either inefficient at best or outright oppressive at worst. Yeah. So, oh, I'll, I'll add one thing quick before you go on. So you asked like, you know, where should government get involved, right? Where does it? And so I think I, I wrote a couple of notes to make sure I said things, you know, uh, well, right? Um Government should be involved in providing justice when our rights are violated. That's the role of government, right? So that's why cops, um, courts, systems. Um, I think you could argue common defense, right? So an army. Now, not necessarily a standing army, right? Which, you know, even the, the founding fathers were very skeptical of because they knew once you have this shiny toy, you want to use it, right? <laughs> Um, but a common defense, um, I think. And then also in the very rare instances where you can't really have property rights to exchange. Um, so for example, like the environment, right? I can't own my plot of air. And so when somebody across the you know country puts stuff into the air and it poisons my air, there's nothing I can do to say, well, I'm taking care of my air, right? And so the, those are the very few instances as well, I think, where it makes sense for the government uh, to get involved. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So that, that, that would be extremely limited, I mean, mm -hmm. by and large. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, because I, I was thinking while you're talking about a free financial market, it seemed like on libertarianism, it, um, you know, the, going that route, it seems like being able to choose is is a very big deal, and so it, um, I guess it just seemed to me like, well, why wouldn't we have kind of the same thing with with governments? Like, you know, I I'm part of an HOA because I wanted a house here. It mm -hmm. was the right price compared to other other places. Um, it was nicer than some other places that maybe didn't have HOAs, but I didn't want to live in that that area or in that house, or it was too far from this or from that. So I chose to place myself under this particular HOA. Um, so it just seems like not being able to choose your government, um, kind of like I'm born as a U.S. citizen, and that's mm -hmm. my 
you know, my government. I don't have a choice. Yeah. So I think you do to some extent, but not a full extent, right? So you have you ever heard of the term voting with your feet? Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, that's essentially kind of what that is, is choosing your own government, right? That's why, like, I mean, let's be frank, most people are moving to states like Texas, Florida, um, even Tennessee, where I live. Um, U-Haul just released a study and basically said, like, Tennessee is the number one destination for one-way U-Hauls rentals, um, <laughs> um, whereas people are leaving states like California, New York, right, Illinois. Um, and I mean, what are some of the reasons you could argue? Well, those first couple states don't have income taxes, right? You know, it, I mean, so think about it. You automatically get a pay raise because you don't have to pay state income taxes, right? Mm-hmm. So I think you have that to some extent. But yeah, the bigger government you get, right? And so obviously the nation is the biggest. The harder it is to move, you know. Um, and also, I mean, this is getting really deep, but yeah, you're right. I mean, people talk about, well, there's the social contract, right? Well, name me a contract that I've ever been, you know, forced to comply to that I didn't sign, right? Every other contract in your life you sign, um, whether it's even your stupid cell phone plan, right? You sign a contract. Uh, you, you didn't sign the social one, but, you know, that's that's a, <laughs> that's a whole nother rabbit trail to go down for sure. Yeah. So. So one of the things with with anarchism and probably a bit less with with libertarianism, but is is that people feel like there's this idea that without government, people would just kind of destroy each other. Um, it, like Mad Max is is kind of what I think of, or uh, Superdome, Hurricane Katrina. You know that that's anarchism. That's what would happen if people were kind of free and left to their own devices. Because we need a, a you know big. Uh, big government to kind of watch over our shoulders and make sure we make the right decisions, uh, certificates of needs, like to make sure that we, we do the right thing. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was, I was, uh, I don't know where I came across it. Probably one of the books that you, you recommended, but um, it was coming across a quote that uh, that was from McCulloch versus Maryland, where it says that, you know, the power to tax is the power to destroy. And it was probably in a, a the Jekyll Island book you'd recommend it. It was probably from there, but he was, he was going into all of this, this monetary policy types of things and, and kind of showing how the power to tax really is the power to destroy. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're, we're all taxed. So in essence, we're, we're all kind of being destroyed to a certain extent, um, by, by the government, you know, with the, with the sword at our, at our throat. Um, so I understand that you, you, said that the creature from Jekyll Island is something to take with a grain of salt. Mm-hmm. You said that, I mean, and I looked the guy up and he's, I think he's kind of crazy um, in terms of, of some of his ideas. But the part of the book that I thought was really solid was about his, the monetary policy right. and his explanation of um, how inflation and, and all of that works. And it, it started to also make a lot of sense because a lot of the other books that I was reading, um, at, you, you go to read about government and you're like, why is half the book about economics? Mm-hmm. Because it, it's always about money. Um, there, there's money tied in there, in there somewhere. So I'd love for you to kind of, um, to kind of talk a little bit about um, the, the, current government, the government's power 
fiscal power at the moment and kind of how that is is muddying the waters. And I, I know you've you've talked a little bit sort of from the legislative perspective, but maybe you could go more fiscally. Sure. So it's a great question and a huge topic, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, so money, if you want to think about it, is nothing more than stored value, right? Stored work, right? I, I traded work for money. And the reason why, I mean, money was not created by governments. It was, a, it was, there's a term called spontaneous order, right? It's something where society just realized we need. Um, I mean, it's the same thing with language, right? And, and, and written systems, numbers, right? These are, you know, spontaneous order. We, we realize as a society that we need things. And so obviously early on, before we had money, um, you had to have what economists call the coincidence of wants. So be, we would barter. So let's say I had I made bread, you caught fish. I wanted to trade you three loaves of bread for two fish. Well, the problem is, is if you didn't want bread, we couldn't trade, right? And so you had to find two people that both wanted what each other had, which is a, obviously a very complicated and inefficient system. So we as humans came up with the idea of something to store value, store the value of work. And that was money. And so now let's say, hey, I want your fish, but you don't want my bread. I can sell my bread to somebody who wants bread, get money, which is then universally accepted. And then we can, everybody can trade. Well, obviously governments because they are the monopoly of force, the monopoly of power, like control of money. And so from pretty early on, uh, governments have basically then taken control over issuing money. I mean, this is going all the way back to Romans. And then the problem is, is that if your money is based on something, you know, historically it's been gold and silver, but it could be really anything. If it's constrained by the supply that backs it, right, what you use, then governments can't spend as much as they want, and they don't like that. So what has happened throughout history is governments manipulate the monetary supplies. I mean, you can, you know, Google like Roman coin clipping. And so <laughs> what, what governments would do, for example, is like Romans would, they would tax people and they would shave parts of a coin off, take those shavings and melt them down and make more coins and then use them to buy stuff, but then say, hey, there's the same amount of coins, so they still have the same value. And people would uh, know that this was false. Um, and But ever since now, since I think it's 71, when we went off the gold standard, right, all money today is fiat. So the term fiat means by decree. So it only has value because the government says it has value. So, for example, if you look up any piece, you know, dollar that you have, this is a $10 bill. It says this note is legal tender for all debts, public and private. It is illegal in the United States not to accept dollars and you have to pay all taxes in dollars. So the government mandates you use them. So these are called legal tender laws. So it gives them a monopoly of money, right? And then what's interesting, though, is when we use paper, it's obviously very easy to print paper, right? So historically, 
the paper would be backed by something, usually, like I said, gold or silver. It Think of it as like a claim check. Like when you go to the dry cleaners, you would trade in your shirts and you'd get a ticket back, right? Or a valet, even more so, right? You give the guy your car keys, he gives you a ticket. Everyone knows that that ticket doesn't have value. It's the car that does. That ticket just gives you the right to that value. This is why way back, you know, back when our grandparents were alive and I still have some, you know, you would have gold certificate 20s. You could lay down your 20 at the bank and they would give and say, give me my money. And they would hand you a one ounce of gold. All right. Same thing with the $2 was an ounce of silver. Um, well, back in the Revolutionary War, this is a funny story. Obviously, we were trying to fight the British and needed money to pay all of our soldiers and all that. So we started using paper money and printing and printing and printing. Um, kind of like if you've ever seen the pictures of Weimar Germany after World War One, right, where it got so bad that the paper had more value as fire kindle, you know, kindling, you know, and people would take wheelbarrows of, of dollar bills to buy a loaf of bread. Um, <laughs> that happened with it was called the Continental. And so if you ask your grandparents, there used to be this old saying in the United States, it's as worthless as a continental. And because we knew inherently that paper money is worthless, right? Or why we also used to say U.S. dollars are as good as gold. That's where that saying comes from, because it could be exchanged for gold, right? Um, and so it was, you know, a funny story or interesting is... After the Revolutionary War, when we were writing the Constitution, the Founding Fathers knew that the whole paper money thing didn't work. Um, so in Article 1 of the Constitution, it says the federal government can only coin money and regulate the value thereof. It says nothing about printing. Originally, the, the federal government cannot print money. And so prior to the Civil War, banks, individual banks, would issue paper money, and then the the U.S. Mint would coin dollars, so silver dollars, right? Things like that. Um, after silver, during the Civil War, they put a stop to that, saying banks could no longer print their own money. So you could have like cash bank dollars, you know, Bank of America paper dollars, um, but no, no longer. But if you look at a dollar bill, you have it still says to this day, it's not made by the treasury. It's made by the a Federal Reserve note. It's printed by a bank. Because we knew, we the founding fathers were wise and said, hey, the government should not be able to print money. It should only be able to coin it. And then so basically we figured out this workaround. Well, if we make a private bank responsible for our money, that bank can print it and the government do, and still doesn't. So we're not violating the constitution. We just found a really good workaround. That blows my yeah. I didn't I didn't know that the Federal Reserve is a private bank. It is. It is private and it doesn't reserve anything. It is literally owned by shareholders. Um, and so, if you really think about how it works, it so the, the the government wants the deficit spend. It releases bonds, right, which are essentially IOUs. The Federal Reserve buys those bonds, okay, from the Treasury. With Federal Reserve notes, which are essentially, which are essentially, and you can read this right on the Federal Reserve website, they buy those bonds essentially from a checking account that has no money in it. So no, they just they just print the money to buy the bonds. Correct. Yes. Yeah. So then, what you have is a buildup of 
Federal Reserve notes, dollars at the Treasury and then bonds at the Fed. So then if you think about it, so bonds have interest, right? The, the federal government has to pay back those debts. So then what happens is, is the Treasury has to pay off those bonds, which are owned by the Fed, which is a private institution, which has shareholders, which are, we don't know who its shareholders are, but essentially they're the big banks. So the big banks make interest money off of money dollars that the government prints is the best way to think about it. Or that the government gets a private bank to print. Exactly. <laughs> yep. And it can do as much as it wants because it, it is from a checking account that has no money. In fact, uh, right at the end of 2020, the Federal Reserve puts out a lot of like economic studies and statistics. Um, <laughs> third, listen to this. 35% of all dollars ever created were created from March of 2020 to December of 2020. 35% of all dollars ever in the history of the United States were created in the nine, 10 months post, you know, the start of the pandemic. There is no limitation on them. And so this is why we have seen the value of our dollar plummet. It's down 98% or 96% since the creation of the Federal Reserve in 1913. Okay. I mean, Basically, why do you have to invest in the stock market? It's to outpace inflation so your money doesn't lose value due to inflation. Well, originally that wasn't the case. You All you had to do was save your money, your gold coins, because you knew 50 years from now is still going to buy the same amount of stuff. The, the dollar really didn't change a whole lot of value from like 1790 to like 1930, other than some small blips during war times, right? Um, but then ever since then, it's completely skyrocketed. It's lost 90% of its value since 1950. And so that's when you think about like property rights, right? And in, in, in free market econ economics, your wealth is, is your property. And so when the government prints money like that, it's debasing the value of your property, which was tied to your work, right? So it's to, that's why, you know, we hear a lot about, oh, the big banks and the 1% are so wealthy. And I don't, you know, I understand those criticisms, but the biggest culprit is, you know, when we talk about like growing income inequality, it's because middle, middle earners, right, lose their wealth due to inflation. They lose their wealth due to the debasing of money. Yeah. And because they're like, at least until Robinhood and other, other apps like that, they're not the ones who are able to invest in the stock market, which is what's going to keep pace with with wealth growth. Yeah. But then, you know, you, you see why is like the, st the stock market, you know, essentially so going so high, even during the midst of the pandemic, when things were obviously not well economically for, you know, public health reasons, um, but obviously it hurt the economy. Well, it's because we were injecting the system with free money, right? I mean, the Fed is printed trillions of dollars. Well, what do you do? You take that free money, right? And you put it in the stock market, right? And so that's where you get these bubbles that bust eventually. And I mean, that's not free market, right? That's, that's not so. So um, how does, how does fractional reserve banking, because that was something that came up a lot, and, and I feel ties in with inflation, how does that relate to this or doesn't it relate to this at all? Oh, it, it very much so does. So fractional reserve banking is something that 
adds a lot to that dollar supply that devalues the dollar. So fractional reserve banking means that a bank only has to hold a certain percentage of its assets actually in the bank, in the vault. So good way to put it is, let's say I deposit $1,000 right, in the bank. A lot of people think like, oh, my $1,000 is in the bank. Well, that's not how it works. That bank then turns around and can lend out a certain percentage of it. It's called the reserve requirement. So traditionally, it's somewhere around 10%. So that means they only have to hold 10% of their deposits on hand. So when I deposit $1,000, okay, my account shows that I have $1,000. But what they really do then is turn around and try and loan as close to $900 of it as they can. So let's say I deposit $1,000. You want to get a loan for something, I don't know, a new laptop, whatever, and you get a loan for $900. Well, it shows that you have, they gave you $900, right? That's all you know, right? But my account still says I have $1,000. So really now we have $1,900 in the system, right? So then you turn around and buy that laptop with $900. Best Buy or Apple or whomever takes that $900 and puts it in their bank. Well, then that bank can loan $81 of that $90. And this system just keeps cycling and cycling and cycling until you've totally like blown up how many dollars are actually in existence. Um, it, it wasn't until recently that the UK uh, had any kind of reserve requirements. They could literally loan out money into infinity, right? The greatest example of this is, I'm sure you've seen the movie, It's a Wonderful Life, right? The Christmas movie, right? There's a perfect ex, um, example of this. The next time you watch this, watch the scene carefully where he's about to go on their honeymoon and the stock market crashes and there's a run on the bank, right? There's a run on the bank and everybody's trying to go and cash out their account. And he's trying to convince them that like, he's like, look, I don't have your money. Your money is in her house and her money is in your car. And he's explaining this. And he's like, I really can't afford to give all of you your money. How much can, like, how much do you really need? That's fractional reserve banking. And we as Americans used to understand this all the time. We, this was well known. That's why early on in our history, there were a lot of bank runs, a lot of runs on the bank because we knew Essentially, it was almost like a pyramid scheme, right? Where it's just only a little bit is actually there, but we say there's all this in existence. And so that's why we have like nowadays the F um, FDIC saying, oh, well, your money's insured up to $250,000. So, you know, regardless if the bank actually has the money, the government will print it, right, to cover your money in case there's a run on the bank. Well, I mean, studies have been shown like the FD FDIC doesn't have enough to cover all. Um, but this is something that we knew as a population. It, I mean, it's it's really sad, in my opinion, how little we understand, you know, economics in today's society. For the first half of our nation's history, one of the biggest political debates was, should we have a national bank? That was a main campaign issue many, many times. We actually had two others prior to the Federal Reserve that were discontinued. Because people realize that this was either A, unconstitutional, or B, a bad idea. Now, most people don't even know what the Federal Reserve is or what it does or how it works, right? But, I mean, that used to be the issue of the day. I mean, 
go back to like um, Andrew Jackson basically became president for talking about, I'm going to end the national bank. You know, I mean, it was as the issue of the day as much as guns or abortion or something like that is now. And we've totally forgotten and don't understand how this system works. And then we, so we see when government intervention in the economy screws up and then we blame the free market when it's really not. Okay. So trying to kind of direct this back, because I think that's a really important, um, there, there's a lot to understand there that I still don't understand, but I mean, I, a couple of those terms are kind of familiar enough to familiar enough to know that it's crazy, like insane. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was listening to, to somebody, um, who was talking about, Hey, look, a, l- a lot of the issues that people have with, with capitalism is that they don't understand that there are really a lot of different forms. And so this individual was, was talking about, uh, Keynesian economics as mm-hmm. really being the, um, the, uh, enemy that, that we're fighting. And, and a lot of it kind of rang true, just knowing what I know about our culture and my own heart, like yeah. basically, um, increasing, wanting more, like spending more, uh, and, and like, it, that makes perfect sense of the materialism we have or the, Hey, you know, buy your iPhone this year and get, get this plan so that next year, this time you can get your next iPhone. Mm-hmm. And like, I understand. So this isn't a critique of other people's immorality and greed. This is like, Oh, that sounds really good to me. Like yeah. I, I, I want new stuff and I want to spend more. If I go to Amazon, it's hard not to buy something. Um, <laughs> So I'd love, I'd love for you to talk about Keynesianism here, the role that it plays, just maybe in, in terms of our culture, like greed, how it impacts the government and, and wastefulness and um, yeah. just kind of the things that we've been talking about so far. Yeah, I, well, I totally get your example. For, my, for Kristen and I, it's Costco, right? You can't go into Costco and not spend like a hundred bucks, it seems like, you know, you, you go in saying... We need chicken and you come out with random stuff, you know, that you had to have. Um, So you have to understand a little bit of background as to when Keynes kind of came on the scene. It was post, you know, post recession. Right. And so the the dominant thought of economists at the time was we would call classical economics. Right. So Adam Smith, supply, demand, the market is efficient. you know, particularly oh, even, you know, over the medium term, maybe it's not as much the short term. And so he kind of had the theory of, well, in the long, he has a famous quote, in the long run, we're all dead, right? So why should we suffer now when what we can do is to get, to help smoothen out the boom and bust cycles, okay? Let's boost aggregate demand. So the economy, if you want to think about is can Part of, is, is made up of a couple of components, consumer spending, investment, which is, you, you know, by businesses, you know, government spending and imports, exports. And so if consumer, you know, spending is down, if business investment is down, we can boost aggregate demand by government spending. And, and so when the economy slows down and we have, you know, chronic unemployment and sticky wages, we can increase in deficit spend. Okay, and that was the idea. The I will say he gets a little bit of a bad rap because he did say that hey, in good times the government should actually cut back that spending, right? To not crowd out like private investment. So he he did say that. The problem is is 
politicians only heard, hey, I'm giving you – it's good economics to spend money, and that's all they heard. They didn't hear the other part of, hey, when the economy's good, you need to cut it back. Um, and so he came out right around the Great Recession time and essentially became the dominant thought of economists and economics since then. Um, he <laughs> – so – since then, it's, you know, this is where we get the idea that, like, you know, government spending is good for the economy, right? After, you know, after World War, or not World War, 9-11, uh, there, and and the war in Iraq and all that stuff was starting, there are clips of George Bush going out and say, essentially, go buy cars, go spend money, and that's Keynesianism, right, in, in and of itself, um, and this is really a distorted consumer's view of what capitalism should be. It, capitalism is about using and finding more efficient ways to use scarce resources, because the number one rule of economics is scarcity exists, right? And so, heck, I mean, you take the word capitalism, is, is it's a reference of capital, right? Which is the use in a, or the you know, development of and storage of resources, not depletion and consumption of them. And so ever since that he kind of came onto the scene, that has been the dominant thing, right? I mean, you, you listen to, you know, the Federal Reserve talking about, they like, if people aren't borrowing, if people aren't going into debt, because now our system is set up to be a debt-fueled economy, it's bad. It's, they say it's bad for the economy. And so that's why they, for example, push interest rates low and to make it cheaper to borrow money. And then in its worst form, we see negative interest rates. We've seen this in like Greece, for example, where literally the banks charge you to store your money. And so it incentivizes you to go out and spend, right? So that's Keynesianism in its extreme form. Um but it, yeah, it's a, it's a distorted consumerist view, right? I mean, like I said, I'll, I'll give Keynes the benefit of that. He did say, hey, when things are good, government, cut back your spending. You know, it's only in the bad turns that you're supposed to do this, but governments have completely ignored that and just say, hey, government spending is good all the time, you know? Um, so, yeah. Okay. So now I want to kind of take a, a sort of different different view. So I think we have a really good foundation on that and understanding kind of how government interferes with, with, uh, capital or, you know, fiscal processes. Mm -hmm. Um, one of, one of the things that I talked about with, um, with my friend Taylor about communism, um, is, is kind of a, a hang up that I have with, with American capitalism. Um, and I might be wrong about it. So I would, you know, I'm sure our opinions diverge and that makes me nervous when we get into the governmental realm, because I know that you like, you're very well thought out, but, um, you know, you, you, you don't ever seem like you have an agenda to me other than just like, well, here's what's true and this and that, and you weigh things really well. So I appreciate that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, like I mentioned before, I was, I had read a number of different books, um, you know, one was called Negroes with Guns. And this this guy in the civil rights era, he's just like, hey, I'm a, I'm a black guy living down south. And, um, you know, some white people were like messing with us. And so we brought out our guns. And, 
they didn't like that. And so they attacked him. Well, they shot at the white people. Mm -hmm. Well, then all of a sudden the FBI is after him and he didn't do anything wrong. And so he flees to Cuba. Um, this, uh, this guy in, um, who wrote, uh, how Europe underdeveloped Africa, um, who ended up being assassinated by, by some people. Um, but he was talking about the history of Africa and how Cubans actually sent tens of thousands of soldiers to help, um, some of the oppressed regions of Africa or Russia was, was helping with certain infrastructure items. Um, and, and the United States during this time is propping up apartheid South Africa. Um, and so one of the things that, that has gotten me frustrated, and, and I remember when it clicked for me, it, it frustrated me when we killed Suleimani, I think it was, um, from Iran. Mm-hmm. People are like, oh, good, that terrorist is dead. And I'm, I'm thinking, well, I, I asked people, I was like, well, why, like, why does Iran hate us? Or why do, why do we hate Iran? So, well, they took some hostages in 79. Well, yeah. Do you know what happened before that? It's like, well, no, they don't know that we, we had a, uh, a coup and installed the Shah who, mm-hmm. who was horrendous, like tortured people. We helped them train their torturers and things. Um, so it just seems to me like what I hear all the time is, Hey, look at Cuba. It's poor even though we undercut it and like prevent people from shipping there and all kinds of stuff, it's poor. So communism doesn't work. And then we look at the United States and say, it's nice and shiny. It must work. But what we don't realize, I think is that there's, there's this big, been this big infusion of wealth from labor from Africa, goods from Africa, not to mention the goods that we, we acquired by conquering the peoples who lived here yeah. like a huge storehouse of wealth that we just grabbed um mm-hmm. and so we don't view yemen who's ha- who has a hundred thousand children starving because mm-hmm. we continue to prop up saudi arabia because they give us lots of money for for weapons right. like it seems to me like yemen is a depiction of the united states just as much as the shiny skyscrapers are mm. um but people don't look at Yemen because that's not that's not here. Like we have right. this nice. So, sorry, a uh, perfect example is. Uh, have you seen the movie The Hunger Games? Oh yeah, of course. Yeah. So District Thirteen, right? <laughs> Terrible. Yeah. Capital, beautiful, and like all these just elegant, wonderful people. And it's like, well, but District Thirteen is as representative of the capital as the capital is because. Yeah the capital created district 13 and they're sucking the resources from them. So that, that's, that's kind of my hang up with capitalism. It does, it, it doesn't seem like it's as nice and shiny and beautiful as everybody props it up to be. And the things that it has that are good were at least in large part unjustly acquired or exploited, exploitatively garnered. Um, And like the image in my mind is I don't know if you've ever seen the the Congolese the picture of the the Congolese man just sitting on the porch like despondent looking mm-hmm. at his daughter's severed appendages appendages because Belgium punished people who didn't fill their quotas they mm-hmm. they chop off their kids' appendages and you look at Belgium it was nice and shiny they had lots of goods but <laughs> it came at the expense of millions of of Congolese lives so that's a, a long question yeah but. Yeah, I'd love for you to to say to, to help me understand is that 
the picture of capitalism that I, I have, or is that a little bit too harsh? So I think, I think that's an example of what I would call mercantilist capitalism, right? So mercantilism was an old, it was kind of the old economic system prior to Adam Smith came around and was really the first, what I would call free market economist, right? And mercantilism, the idea behind it was powers is, is equated to accumulation of resources and money, right? In the, in the homeland, right? And so that's what led to the initial like imperialism, you know, push of the Western powers, right? These colonies, we can use their resources to gain, uh, to gain wealth, right? And uh, this is where the idea of like tariffs really first came about, right? We've got to make sure that, and you had these always escalating tariffs because exports, I'm sorry, imports are terrible because it's, it's gold leaving our country, France, to go to Europe or to go to England or vice versa, right? And so I, I would say that that's a really – I view that as more of a mercantilism issue, right? Because we're, we're exploiting colonies for the motherland's wealth, right? And you know, this is where I think the economics meets the – the politics morality of it aspect is, you know, as the, I view free markets as the economic s- extension of like libertarianism. And this is where you have the idea of the inherent rights of life, liberty, and property. You know, Thomas Jefferson didn't come up with a new idea when he said life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. He basically copied John Locke. He just said life, liberty, and property. And, you know, property rights, you know, of which yourself, you own yourself, is the fundamental system, right, uh, natural law that we we try and respect. And so a lot of what we talk about there is violations of either life, liberty, or property. So, for example, I think one of the books I had you read uh, was The Law by Frederick Bastiat, right, who – sounds really nerdy to say, but he was kind of like the bad boy of classical liberal economists, right? So he was all all into these like pithy sayings and kind of being combative. And what we would say is owning the libs, you know, fighting socialist ideas. And he talks about, um, for example, slavery is legalized plunder of liberty, right? It's, It's using the law to take from one and give to another. That's legalized plunder, right? That's not just, that's not just laws. Um, And he argues everything, like you said, you know, tariffs, embargoes, subsidies is legalized plunder of property, right? And so a lot of these, you know, unfortunate systems, you know, um, is that's what I would say that is, you know, is more this idea of essentially legalized plunder, right? That usually results from um, lack of protection of property rights. And we've, you know, I think the reason why we've seen the United States, for example, become so wealthy or some of the others, yes, obviously it's part of that exploitation, which is essentially legalized plunder, which is not free, right? It's not voluntary exchange, 
um, but people talk about, it's those protection of property rights. And a lot of your um, underdeveloped countries have not always had strong rules of law around property rights. And so it's allowed, you know, and rule of law. And so it's allowed countries like ours and big companies to come into these countries and be exploitative. Um, so I think that explains a lot, you know, obviously there was a lot to unpack there. I mean, I think generally, of course, so for example, like, yes, the, you know, embargoes of, of Cuba and Iran, right. That's legalized plunder of property, right. Because, and the way to determine if something is legalized plunder is if an individual did it, would it be illegal, right? If I stopped you from being able to sell your product to somebody else or to buy something from somebody else by force, right? Would that be legal? No, right? But governments do it. And so then it's somehow okay, right? But it's, it's essentially legalized plunder. Um, for example, I love this quote. So I, I think you'll like this one. So this is from St. Cyprian of Carthage, right? So early church father. This is in 250 AD. So listen to what this is. Consider the roads blocked up by robbers, the seas beset with pirates, war scattered all over the earth with the bloody horror of camps. The whole world is wet with mutual blood and murder, which in the case of an individual is admitted to be a crime, is called a virtue when it is committed wholesale. Impunity is claimed for the wicked deeds, not on the plea that they are guiltless, but because the cruelty is perpetuated on a grand scale, right? That is what governments do, right? And, and you know, and why I will always believe that true free markets, right, where life, liberty, and property are respected, then is, is always going to be better than, you know, socialism is that because... Socialism is legalized plunder. It allows the state to take others, right, and give it to whom it wants. Um, and it's also why, for example, it owns the, st the state owns everything. And so therefore it owns your life, right? And so obviously, you know, democracies have done terrible things, but, um, you know, we don't have millions of massacred at the hands of free market economies like we have in Soviet Russia and China and even in Cuba, right? I mean, all you got to do is read some Che Guevara quotes. And, uh, you know, I mean, he talks about like he's been bored because he hasn't killed anybody in a couple of days, mm. you know? Uh, and so that's why I will always believe that true free market capitalism is inherently better because people are, they flourish more when they're free, when they're not at the point of a gun, you know, when they're not under duress. and free markets and liberty generally are the best respecter of that, right? You And the role of government is to prevent those injustices. But what happens over time is, is we allow legalized plunder using the government to unjustly take from some. Yeah, that's what, you know, I don't get, I've seen the category of anarcho-communists come up and I, you know, I, and maybe you can help me understand this a little bit, but what what drives me towards anarchism is i mean the government governmental violence which i mean you've you've mentioned a lot they have a monopoly on violence yep um but then it's also from the practical side of things when when they control things it reminds me a lot of 
you know, we know biologically invasive species are terrible. But what's even more terrible is when you have an invasive species and then you bring in another invasive species to try to counteract that invasive species. Mm-hmm. And that seems like kind of what what governments do when they try to preemptively, proactively control things. Like there, it's just an invasive species. It, it's unnatural. And um, it, it seems like socialism, communism do that. They seek to do those preemptive, proactive controls. Um, whereas, you know, what, what you're kind of saying is that your view of government would be, they'd be more of the reactive. So somebody pollutes the air, they react to that. And so I think, think about the judicial and I'll just interrupt quickly, right? That's the whole point of the justice system is to try and make you whole, right? And so it's, it's meant to be restorative, right? Your rights have been violated. We bring justice on that, right? But the problem is, is when it gets outside those roles, is it tends to be the number one perpetrator of injustice, you know? So, so continue. Yeah. Your well, yeah. So I guess uh, two questions out of that is first of all, and maybe you don't understand them because maybe, maybe they're just an enigma, but I'd like to understand how in the world anarcho-communism works. Like it doesn't make sense to me. Um, and number two, from on your view, as more of a reactive force, if if that's what government was, that sounds way better to me. Um, you know, if if that's the farthest you go, that sounds that sounds pretty good overall. Um, but I'm still I'm so skeptical of governments mm-hmm. um, because of their growth, right? The tendency to growth, like you said. Yeah. And and when you when you talk about jobs and people needing a supply. I think of in, in uh, our school system, uh, we, ha- we had to spend all of the money that the government allotted for us, even if we didn't need it. Mm-hmm. Because then the next year, your budget was based on how much you needed. And right. if you didn't use it all, you'd lose some of your budget. Yep. So, you know, I'm, I'm thinking, the skeptical side of me is thinking, well, on your view, that sounds great. But maybe year one, it, it's it's good. But if I'm a judge or a cop or something. I need to justify my position. I need some crime. You know, that influences the types. Of, we need more legislation on this. We need more legislation on that. We need more. I mean, private, and, and maybe you disagree with the privatized prison system, but it seems like that's in part privatized prison system mixed with lobbying mm-hmm. and, and uh, con- in control of legislation. Yeah. Maybe you could explain how, how your system would actually function. As well, so anarcho capital, anarcho communism. How would your system function? Yeah, I don't know if I fully understand anarcho communism. Um, I I have generally found, you know, that when you add more and more of these terms and smash them together, it gets more and more confusing. But also, just so much farther from where we are now that it's like, you know, and I think this is also part of the thing between me and like being an anarchist is like we are so far right from even the society that I want, you know, we can handle how do we privatize the cops, you know, when we get to that point, (laughs) you know, and so I haven't fully thought through how that would practically work, right? And so when we get to that point, we'll we'll cross that bridge, you know? Um, So that's the first part. I mean, um, and 
make sure I cover all the things you want me to cover. But like, you know, a lot of the stuff though is, yeah, I mean, it, it, it comes down to a problem of incentives, right? One of the, you know, rules of economics, one is scarcity exists, two, there ain't no such thing as a free lunch, right? And then three's incentives matter. And so what often happens is, is when we create laws, it creates, we do so with bad incentives built into it. So, yeah. So for example, with cops, you know, like, you know, some of the things, Hey, you, you want to talk about like reforming policing, having fewer laws on the books, having fewer crimes, right? So that way there's fewer touch points and interactions, you know, um, one of the biggest things is like civil asset forfeiture. I don't know how familiar you are with this, but basically the government or police can seize your property if they believe it's related to the conviction of a crime, even without proof, essentially. Um, and so, I mean, you have stories of stories of stories of like somebody gets pulled over for a routine violation, traffic violation. They see a wad of cash. They think, oh, that must be related to drugs. We're going to take the money. And then you got to prove that it wasn't related to drugs to get your money back. Um, I mean, I've seen reports like they steal some, take some really weird stuff like trombones, uh, you know, diamond rings is always a common one. Um, and they say, well, we, and then they turn around and sell those items and make money off of them. And it's like, well, we need those funds to, you know, fund our operations. Well, maybe if you didn't pull so many people over, maybe you wouldn't need all those funds, right? And all those resources, because we have so many laws on the books. Um, you know, in, in in reference to private prisons, I think the problem is, is a problem of incentives. So, you know, right now, whether it's public or private, we fund prisons based upon how many people are in them, right? So what does that create? That creates an incentive to put more people in prison, you know, um, especially with a private one, because then you have the profit motive. And I'm never going to discourage a company from making profit. It's what Profit is nothing about trying to create value for your customer. Um, but what if we change the incentive to where it emphasized outcomes, not inputs? So, for example, a huge thing in public policy right now and something like the organization that I've worked around is, um, is uh, reentry and reducing recidivism. You know, so in most states, and I just know the specific number for Tennessee, Basically, 50% of people who leave prison are going to wind up back in prison within three years. Okay. That creates a lot of victims. It creates a lot of costs. It creates a lot of destruction in families, right? Cost of the taxpayer, obviously. And so instead, what if we said, hey, private prison, we're not going to fund you for how many people we have you hold. We're going to fund you by, hey, how many job programs do you put these people through that gives them skills so that way they have a marketable skill when they leave prison and so they don't feel they need to go back to selling drugs in order to make a living? And oh, that's so brilliant. We, right? So we give you 75% of your money up front, and then for every person that doesn't end up back in prison in three years, we give you an extra $3,000, right? So that actually creates – that uses the profit motive – for a better outcome, right? We're using in the power of incentives for a better public outcome. And obviously the government and we as taxpayers as an extension of the government benefit from that because 
then yeah, okay, maybe we pay more per person in prison, but overall our costs go down because guess what? There's fewer people going back into prison, right? Um, here's, a, here's a crazy example of this, believe it or not. Texas has really led the way on this. Um, and, you know, when you think of Texas, you know, you think tough on crime, right? And they are very tough on crime. But Governor Rick Perry back, I think, in like 2010 was facing like a – they had their, – their prisons were completely full. The federal government was about to come in and take over their prisons because they couldn't run them well. And they had, I mean, people sleeping on like mattresses on the – like outside their cells on the floor, all this kind of stuff. And he's like, and so he was looking at like a $2 billion bill to build new prisons. And he said, you know, if we spend this money, they're just going to be full and we're going to be back here again in, you know, five to six years with the same problem. He said, instead, what if we took a couple hundred million and invested in things like reentry programs, judicial diversion programs, drug courts, things like that? Because they answered, they try to answer the fundamental question, are we scared of you or are we mad at you? Right. You know, did you violently hurt somebody and you're you're, you know, a threat to society and we need to put you away? Or are we just mad at you because we you did something we didn't like, you know, um, and they differentiated. And so what they've seen now is the recidivism is dropped while crime rates have dropped. In fact, Texas has closed like nine prisons over the past 10 years. Right. But if you violently hurt somebody, if you rape, murder, you know, stuff like that, oh, they still treat you hard, you know, um, and even obviously they're well known for using the death penalty, which, you know, different topic. But, you know, on those nonviolent offenses, they've used incentives to create better outcomes. So um, I think a lot of the problems that we have is government just doesn't have good incentives, as we've talked about before. And so sometimes by allowing the free market to run things that even the government runs. If you set up the incentives, well, it actually works out well. Okay. So that yeah. was a long answer. <laughs> no, it was good. And, and I mean, that like would give me hope for prisons and you're right. Like when I think of a private system being incentivized, a private uh, prison being incentivized in that manner. Yeah. Like, yeah, I wouldn't mind them making money if they do accomplish that. Like, right. Yeah. Do it. I'll give you a quick story. Um, I, you know, I, I know we're not want to take up five hours as you joked, but, um, so a lot of people don't, they don't think about occupational licensing, right. Which is really the government's permission to do a job, right. You've got, and you know, we know that doctors, lawyers, teachers, right. Have always had licenses, right. If I'm, I've, I've had surgeries, as you know, um, you better believe I want to know that that doctor knows what he's doing, Right. Um, but we've seen that grown exponentially. Uh, in 1950, about 5% of Americans needed a government license to do a job. Now the estimate is around 30% of, of people in the workforce need the government's permission to do a job. And a lot of these licenses have what are called good moral clauses. Like you have to be of good moral character. Well, how do you define that, Right. And so a lot of these licenses are run by licensing boards, right? So you've got people in the profession who sit around and look at applications and on behalf of the government, they decide, should this person have a license or not? And they can reject anybody for having any kind of criminal background half the time, most of the time. So for example, even if it's completely unrelated to the crime, 
So you were stupid and you stole a six-pack of beer in college. You could be banned from doing any host of number of jobs, even like cutting hair for the rest of your life in most states, right? And so a great story I know was there's um, in Tennessee, we have what are called TCATs. They're kind of like trade schools, tech schools here. They're state tech schools. And they used to have a barbering program where you would go to school to learn how to be a barber, right? And he talked about how he used to have a program with the prisons where prisoners would come in, right, and learn how to cut hair. So that way when they left prison, because like 90% of people who are in prison are leaving prison at some point, the other 10% die or get the death penalty. Most are coming out. Maybe I think it might even be higher. They would have a marketable skill. Well, they ended up shutting down the program because they realized the state was paying for these prisoners to attend school to learn how to be a barber. Then they would come out and apply for a barbering license, and then they would be denied because they have a criminal record. So the right hand didn't know what the left hand was doing. And so the organization I worked with, or I work with, helped pass a law that said, you can't deny somebody a license unless it's directly related to the job that you're seeking. So you stole a six pack of beer. We can't stop you from being, you know, a barber. If you've got six breaking and enterings, you know, we're not going to give you a locksmith license. You're obviously a good locksmith, but we're not going to give you the authority, the blessing of the state, right? To be a locksmith. Um, so, I mean, that's where like sometimes just these inefficiencies and bad incentives of government get in the way of, you know, free markets, for example. And so been working to try and, you know, remove these types of barriers and costs in the system. So this is sort of a side question, but it, it does relate to bad incentives. Um, one of the questions that I wrote down a while back was, um, so subsidies are essentially in governmental incentives, and probably I would imagine most of the time they end up being bad. Is um, is the, you know, you've probably heard of food deserts in, in oh, cities. Yeah. Um, and, and like, I, I've wondered when I go into the store, how is it that I buy this this bag of junk that's got 50 different ingredients, half of them like processed and have to go through their own, you know, uh, process to, to get into the form that they're in. Yeah. And that's cheaper than like the raw substance of like potatoes or onions or whatever. (laughs) Like, is that related at all to government incentives and subsidies? Um, I don't know about that. I mean, because I've heard corn is super subsidized. Oh, absolutely. Corn is completely screwed up. Um, so we use, you know, when you go to the gas station, right, you'll see it'll say so usually around 10% ethanol, right, in your gas, which is essentially corn. So I think it's roughly, and I'm, you know, don't quote me on the exact number, but essentially 90% of like our of our corn is for fossil fuels and like 10% is for food. And so is sweet corn. Right. And so we all, I think it's right now we actually have a shortage of corn in the United States, but because 90% of it is grown, not intended for human consumption, but to subsidize our gas or to make our gas, you know, greener. And the United States government spends billions of dollars subsidizing corn production for this. Um, 
the next time the presidential election rolls around and, you know, it always starts in Iowa, right? The first caucus is always in Iowa. They will always talk about the farm subsidies and some, usually it's only a Republican that will be brave enough, you know, with trying to appear as free marketed. Um, we'll talk about how it's, you know what, I think we should cut the corn subsidies and some people will really boo them and some people will be like, hey, good for you for saying the truth, you know, whatever. Um, it's a huge thing out there, you know, and and so basically it really started around the Great Depression. The United States government views food as a national security thing. And so they will literally pay farmers to grow more than they need to and then like you know, we always hear about how, like, obviously there's a shortage of food and we have all this wasted food here in the United States. Well, a lot of that is because of government subsidies. They'll pay farmers to grow something, but then not to sell it. And then this food gets wasted, right? Because we have, from a public policy perspective, viewed being able to be food sufficient um, as a national security priority. And so we totally mess up the farm supply system in order to make sure that if God forbid we go to Russia, our wheat production doesn't suffer. So, okay. So I, I think I have two questions to, to kind of uh, wrap this up. Um, right. So the first one is, I, I just want to kind of come back to the question that I think I've, we, we've kind of joked about like several times, which is uh, the bus, you know, why we're at different stops on the bus. Yeah. So I've I've heard you say so far that um, you know government monopolizes violence and tends to use it very poorly. Mm-hmm. They try to take power and control, and a lot of times that that's fiscal power and control. Uh, um, they take control of money and um, they try to incentivize things, but whenever they do anything proactive, that's a problem. And um, I mean, as as a Christian. I know that you you understand human nature and you know that we like power and when you get mm-hmm. power, you want more of it. Um, so if you were going to try to argue with, uh, discuss with a, an anarchist and, and try to convince them, I don't know how passionately you care. You're probably like, oh, if you're an anarchist, I mean, that's close enough. I'm, I'm good with you. <laughs> but if you were going to try to convince somebody from the, from the other side, um, to kind of come to libertarian and have limited government, why would you say you're at the bus stop you're at? Yeah. Well, first, before I get there, I mean, I do want to talk like, yeah, we've talked about government as power and, and it and it breeds corruption and, and violence and all. I mean, if you haven't heard the James Madison quote, I mean, it's very fundamental to this conversation. I wrote it down so I didn't wouldn't mess it up. If men were angels, no government would be necessary. If angels were to govern men, neither external nor internal controls on government would be necessary. In framing a government which is to be administered by men over men, the great difficulty lies in this. You must first enable the government to control the governed, and in the next place, oblige it to to control itself, right? Um, You know, a lot of people talk about oh, capitalism is greedy and all this kind of stuff. And so, you know, Bernie Sanders talks about, you know, stuff like this and, and all that. And I, and I, you know, I would say it's self-interest. It's, it's immorals and self-interest, not necessarily selfishness. Now, there are selfish people, absolutely. 
Um, but then the very reason then you shouldn't do that is, is to make the system more powerful in order to be, right, um, to legalize plunder more, right? If, if government is, you know, if men are selfish and evil, then the last thing we want to do is give them more power to initiate force, right? Um, but why I think we have to have some, I think the main reason for me comes down to uh, two items. One, you have to have, there's some kind of like freeloader effect around this. Um, so for example, let's say the government could only fund a military through private donations. And it was the military's job to sell me on the value of a military, right? And so they come to you, Derek, and they say, hey, you know, there's a lot of bad actors out in the world. North Korea talks about, you know, sending nukes our way, all this kind of stuff. Will you give us money that we can use to have at least some standing defense to, you know, basically say, hey, you don't want to attack us because then we can attack you back. And you say, hey, that's great. Yeah, I'll, I'll donate money to that, right? Um, the problem is, is if I see that you've donated, I have an incentive to not help that cause because the military can't defend you and not me, right? <laughs> it's impossible. And so you kind of have to have at least some, some of these services where we, I think, just have to, from a practicality standpoint, we all have to bear that burden. So um, the, the common effect right? Like we all, like the army can't defend your block, but not mine. And so if we're going to, you know, if we were invaded, right? Oh, worry about who, what, what, you know, people have donated to do so. Um, or just like, for example, courts, right? Well, let's say I paid as a monthly membership to this court system. And if I had redress, you know, if I needed to make myself whole, I would take this to my court system but you paid for another court system and didn't recognize the authority of my court system. Well, what do I do then if you have violated my rights? Let's say you've taken some of my property. What do I do? Right? Because you don't respect the authority of mine. Right. And so then we'll do, you know, and so then you, you just kind of have at some point, like we have, there's some level where we all have to have one common provider. And so even if it's private, Right. Like, hey, we all agree we're, you know, as a America, we vote to give company X the opportunity for the next 10 years to run the court system. OK, well, even if it's private, that's a government. I mean, because it's the monopoly of force. Right. And so even if it's privately funded, it's still a monopoly. You have to have at some level for to to um, address injustice. You have to have some monopoly of force in order to address that. Right. So I think that's the main reason for me. Now, I know there are a lot of well-read anarchists that have probably thought through those issues, those criticisms that I just gave. Um, you know, as I point out, like, maybe that's true, but we are so far from privatizing everything that, you know, I'm, I'm not too... If, if we still have to have a hospital prove that it can add an MRI machine, we're so far away yeah. from, uh, you know being able to debate like can we survive with a publicly funded yeah. court system and police so well that's I, kind I, of my just inherent issues and while you have to have that minarchist what i would say perspective so i'm, I'm not a well-read anarchist at this point but 
there, there are two things that come to mind and maybe you have answers for them. Um, but you know, you're, you're talking about being in paying for, a you know, one judicial system, but then maybe going into the other and not recognizing that, but isn't that essentially what happens on the global scale? You know, if I'm, if I'm over in some other country, um, or you, I mean, even Canada or Mexico, you know, especially if you live on the border, those are different judicial systems, but that's kind of, you recognize you're, you're entering another territory and that's mm-hmm. just kind of the way it is. Like we, we do deal with that. It's just scaled up to, you know, nation sized things. Sure. But if we deal with it on this scale, what's the difference between dealing with it on a smaller scale? No, I think that's fair. I think, um, quite frankly, one issue is just, uh, like the practicality, right? I mean, there's not too often that I'm dealing with businesses or people in other countries, you know? Um, now, if I buy something from Amazon on China or from China, right, and I get ripped off, it's not what it is. Like, you know, I'm kind of usually sunk out of luck, you know, SOL. Um, but, you know, when you talk about, let's say, if my neighborhood, my cul-de-sac created its own judicial system and every cul-de-sac in my neighborhood did right well it's pretty hard for me to function my life when i'm worried about you know my rights being able to be protected with each cul-de-sac that i drive through you know so i think there's just a scaling issue with that right whereas you know um that would address that deals with some of the problems there yeah, I would just think that, you know, may, and maybe maybe you've convinced me too much. Maybe I'm like too free now. <laughs> but it it just seems like, well, yeah, but they, you know, if if five cul-de-sacs here feel one way and this other doesn't, you know, we're not going to exchange with them on Craigslist or through Bitcoin yeah. or whatever. So it's it's like I mean, you'd be incentivized to have pretty general generally applicable laws that everybody respected or else you're not going to be able to, to interact in the ways. Right. No, I, I understand that. Right. I mean, what you're talking about is um, like realistics of commerce, right? That's why we have like statewide driver's license rather than city-based driver's license. Right. Because you got to have at least some ability to function in different areas, you know, with recognized status. Um, so, I mean, I think that's fair, but I think, you know, when you talk about, okay, as you continue to scale, then, you know, at what point is that really just a government, right? It's not. Yeah. yeah. So remember, government doesn't have to be this like elected body, right? I mean, that is called the government. It's just monopoly of force. And so whatever that looks like, that's a government. And so, you know, yeah. so that's the only, that's the main pushback, I guess. But. So, yeah. And that's a good point. Uh, yeah. At what point does it become government? I don't know. <laughs> um, the The other question I had is, and a lot of times I see libertarians talking about, especially in regard to welfare and poverty, um, about how, yes, it's sad that there are people who are, even just assuming that a lot of the people are um, impoverished, not at fault of their own, like mm-hmm. just through, through circumstances. Uh, assuming that, like for as sad as that is, the government shouldn't force me or my neighbor to have to pay money to help that person. And so I guess with, when I think of the freeloader problem, um, you know, as a as a pacifist, I would say 
well, okay, but I don't, I don't morally agree with the military and I don't want to pay for them. Like, because, mm-hmm. and so it seems like, yeah, it, it, it almost seems like it goes against the moral foundation of um, libertarianism or, or whatever that, that philosophy is to basically say, well, people are going to have to do, we're going to have to force people to do something. Um, and it feels like, well, then why not force them to, to deal with poverty in the same way? Because to me, that's a big issue, whereas the military isn't. And so it, I don't know. Well, that's a, that's a good question. Um, so I think it comes down to, remember, it's, it's about liberty, right? And so is my liberty being violated? And that's where the role of government comes in, right? And so if somebody is poor, you know, unless their rights have been violated, right, just because it may be good to help them doesn't mean that that's the role of government to do, right? So I'm sure I can fairly quickly find it, but um, in the law, let's see. Hold on. I'm going to find this. Dramatic pause for effect. But anyways, I know he talks about that, you know, socialists think because we do not think the government should do something means we don't care at all, right? Like I hear this all the time from socialists, oh, you just don't care. Like, you don't care about the poor people. I'm like, well, that's not necessarily true. I just don't think we should use force to rob people to address that, right? Um, so it's it's finding private means, you know, to do so unless a right has been violated, right? If, there, if somebody's life, liberty, or property has been that uh violated then the government steps in to to help that person so if you have legitimate things of exploitation harm crime all that of course you know but for example with poor i'm not saying it's not important it just one we shouldn't use violence to solve poor right but then also it just ignores the fact going back to the problem of incentives it's just governments are bad and doing it right. I mean, one of the things we talked about from the very beginning was the war on poverty, right? How we've spent billions, billions of dollars fighting poverty. And the poverty rate's not much different from when we created the Great Society program back in what was it the seventies? You know, so you have one, you know, you you have the force component, right? And I I re- will always refuse to believe that taking somebody else's stuff to you know, supposedly help others, that's somehow virtue, you know, that's, that's not virtuous, you know, uh, and so, and then also it's just inefficient. Um, and then also usually around when government programs do try and help poverty, it creates bad incentives. So for example, there's, um, in my work, we talk a lot about fiscal cliffs, right? So where somebody I've seen it and you can't blame these people, where they know if they make one more dollar, if they take a, a dollar raise or a 50 cent raise, you know, hourly raise, 
at work, they lose tens of thousands in free healthcare benefits, right? And so government programs to help the poor often incentivize them to stay poor, right? Um, this happens with, for example, with TANF benefits, food stamps, WIC. All these programs usually have income you know, limitations. And so if a government is, is using these and we outsource our morality to the government to solve these problems, we're inherently going to create bad incentives where sometimes people are better off being poor. And that's not – I refuse to think that that's good. I refuse to think that that's helping the problem, right? I mean, and I think this also goes back to like, you know, the whole, oh, you hear Jesus was a socialist. Well, Jesus didn't say, go rob the rich man and give it to Caesar so that way he can pay help the poor. He didn't say that. He said, you go help the poor, you know. Um, yeah. and, and so, but that's what socialism is. It is force. And, you know, as much as they want to say it's socialism doesn't mean social, like, oh, I'm good. I'm a good person. It means I believe that. The government, the public, the society, it has the right to take anything that it wants to accomplish anything that it deems worthy. And that's the problem. Yeah, I was just talking with somebody yesterday about, about that uh, diffusion of responsibility. Mm -hmm. And um, that, that is something that I, I think is um, not a direct problem of government, but just a problem that when you have the bigger the government you have, I think you get those diffusions of, of responsibility. Well, yeah. I mean, just think about it. I mean, you know, obviously it's a very sad line, right? But I think at some point you kind of start to think this. Ebenezer Scrooge, right? When he's asked by the charity guys to give money, he's like, are there no poor houses? Oh, yes, they are. Oh, good. Well, I pay for them through my taxes, right? I mean, that's, you know, whether we, you know, want to admit it or not, I think to some extent that plays into our psyche, right? Yeah, you know, to some extent. Okay, last question for you, um, <laughs> and it, and it might be a long one because I know uh, I know it's uh, maybe a, not a soapbox for you, but but something you really enjoy, um, and something you hate. I'm going to mix the two things together. Mm. I think. So um, I know that you you listen to at least parts of um, my discussion uh, about communism, mm -hmm. and. Um, it's not completely fair to Taylor because you get to respond after the fact. But if he wants to, if he wants to do this again, he can he can respond to you. Um, but I'd like to know maybe some of the some of the things that stood out to you there that you would push back on. Yeah, and and then maybe um, Atlas Shrugged was was a very good book that you had me read. Yeah, and and it's one that I know that you I think you said like second to the Bible was was uh, one of the most influential for you. Correct. Yeah. Um, so I'd like you maybe to, I mean, you don't have to like summarize or tell the whole story if you don't want to, but maybe weaving in some uh, images from that and uh, some some aspects of that, that that maybe paint the opposing picture or maybe sure. fill in some of the, the gaps. Yeah, no. So first of all, I mean, just in the general response, right? And you're right. I mean, you know, whoever gets to speak last, right? Um, and you know, here's the thing. Anybody who's coming from it from a well-intentioned standpoint, I mean, I'm never going to deride, right? I mean, probably agree on a lot of what the same problems are. It's just, you know, dealing with what's the best way to solve them. And, you know, <laughs> um, I would say that while you're right, obviously we have been, you know, 
there's a great ROI on slavery, for example, you know, um, so obviously the United States has that on its history. I mean, I would argue it's like the original sin, quote unquote, of the United States, right? Um, generally, free people are always more prosperous. And um, and so, you know, this idea that like, I, I mean, my dad was an army soldier growing, you know, in, when I was growing up. And before even I was born, he was stationed in West Berlin, right? You know. Yeah, sure. Maybe West Berlin incentivized people to come over, but they sure didn't have to. Like, there was no incentives that could give people to go and give up their freedoms, right? To go to East Berlin, you know, there weren't U- U.S. soldiers didn't have to shoot West Berlin's trying to crawl crawl over the wall, you know. Um, and so this idea that, like, I think it's just naturally innate in us to desire liberty and freedom, right? I mean, we are. I mean, even God gives us free will. Right. And so we are allowed to choose, even if we believe in him, right, in in all his wisdom in glory. Um, And so the idea that if God gives us free will, we as a government shouldn't give people free will to choose what's best in in life for themselves. I just, you know, that seems an inherent contradiction uh, to me. And then, you know, the other thing that you hear this a lot about, um, exploitation, exploitation of, of workers, you know, um, through, through the capitalist system. Well, first of all, normally that relies on, uh, and this is getting pretty heavy economics, but, um, the labor theory of value, right? And so the work put into something by a worker is what determines its value. And the whole Karl Marx, you know, thing was, was that, well, the worker puts in all the labor, but doesn't get all the profit. Therefore, he's being exploited. Well, the labor theory of value has been completely discredited. And the simple reason, and, um, and, and in fact, believe it or not, Adam Smith believed in the labor theory of value. So Adam Smith and Karl Marx actually had a lot of similar ideas as to what gave things its value, believe it or not. Um a lot of free market economists today will say, actually, Adam Smith kind of set back economics by 100 years. Now, he was he totally destroyed the idea of mercantilism, which we talked a little bit about was kind of the prevailing idea of the day and show that everybody's better off with free trade. Everybody. Mercantilism doesn't work. And so when Europe was interacting with Africa, they would have been much better off in the long run to treat Europe or Africa fairly respect their property rights and free exchange, voluntary exchange of goods. Um, But the reason you can disprove the labor theory of value is what is called the diamond water paradox, right? You cannot live for more than what, two days without water, right? But water is extremely cheap. Whereas a diamond, you know, you're a married guy, you had to buy a wedding ring at some point, right? Even though a diamond serves no utility, it's incredibly expensive, right? Why? Well, the reason is, is because there's marginal utility and this totally destroys the theory of exploitation of labor and workers. There comes a point where, hey, I have so much water. It's really not that expensive because it's not scarce to me, right? Whereas a diamond, because they're so few and rare, is very expensive. And so I get a lot more marginal utility, a lot more benefit from one more diamond than I do one more gallon of water, 
right? But if I'm in a desert for two days, you better believe I will give up every diamond that I have, right, in order to get a gallon of water, right? Because I don't have water on hand. And so the marginal utility of that one more gallon of water is way more beneficial. So this kind of came out of what's called the Austrian School of Economics, which is kind of like late 1800s, early 1900s. Um, and so it totally changed economics. It's called, it, I mean, it's even called the marginal revolution, believe it or not. Very nerdy, I know. Um, but this totally destroyed this whole idea of value of things coming from the labor inputted into them. Um, and so it really discredits a lot of what social socialism, Marxism, economic theory is based off. And then the other thing is, is so one of the early Austrian economists, his name is um, Bombavrik. So they're all Austrians, kind of where the name comes from. Um, you know, they're not exploiting workers because actually, if you think about it, a business helps workers because they provide them income well in advance of the capitalist earning any income from the selling of that product. Right. So let's say I'm a, you know, a house builder, I have to pay my plumber, I have to pay my carpenter well before I sell that house. And so, you know, labor can't, like, I have to pay the value that a, a worker gets is only at the time of the present value of that labor, right? I can't foresee what the value is, is going to be of this product in the future yet, because I haven't sold it yet. And so if anything, the capitalist or, the, you know, the bourgeoisie, right, you know, the business owner takes that risk because he has to put his risk on the line and pay the person up front before he makes any money. And so what he has to do is charge a higher rate in order to accommodate that risk, right? Um, I mean, it's the whole reason why we have interest. Money now is better than money later. So in order to, you will always take a sure thing over some future thing that might or might not happen. And so that's why we have interest, right? Is people will charge interest because it's a risk and then I'm giving up money now if I loan it to somebody. And so to make it worth that risk, I need more money in the, you know, in, in the future. Um, so I think a lot of this idea of like exploitation of workers, you know, ignores the idea of time in production. It's not like, the assembly line worker pulls this widget, something's created and it's automatically sold. And so we know how much it should have cost and what the profit's going to be, you know? Um, and then also I think we should hesitate to assume too much of what's best for somebody. You know, I hear a lot about like, and of course working conditions can be poor and all this stuff in like other countries, but I think we just have to be careful of, well, we don't know what their alternatives were. Right. And so something I think we should just be careful about. Um, but I think that's, you know, the main missing point that I think a lot of the socialists, Marxists, you know, talk about, right. Or they miss is, is they miss, they think the, the theory of value, right. Has that Marx based his whole idea on has been completely discredited. Um, and it also, I mean, it just doesn't account for like, you know, it's uh, middle management creation, right? I mean, Marx had this idea that we were going to push everybody down to essentially being the guy on the assembly line that pulled the lever, pressed the button, 
and then there'd be one guy at the top that made all the money. Well, clearly that doesn't happen. We've created a middle class, right? And so, you know, it creates the opportunity for advancement. And, you know, and it's that creation of capital, like we talked about what capitalism comes from, that makes the system better. So, you know, I hear a lot about like, and I maybe this was mentioned, I think, was like, oh, Cuba has a lot of doctors. Well, that's great. You know, that's fantastic because they make people go to med school, right? The problem is, is that they don't have an accumulation of capital and the technology and the equipment that we have, you know, that makes it the best place to get care. You know, um, we have all the highest technology because we have better incentives to create new innovative techniques and machines that make people get better quality care at a lower cost. So Cuba needs to apply for some certificate of needs. (laughs) Exactly. Right. Um, so, I mean, it's not just like, oh yeah, Hey, we know there's a shortage of doctors. So the central planner in a communist economy says we need more doctors. Therefore we're going to make these people be doctors. You know, they, the problem is, is then that doesn't mean that you have the accumulation of capital, which as we said, is just more efficient ways to use scarce resources, right. To create better MRI machines. And I mean, you know, th- think about like LASIK surgery, right? LASIK surgery is one of the very few medical procedures that's not covered by insurance, which we talked about has incentive problems. Well, LASIK has gotten like, what, 75% cheaper over the last 15 years, I think roughly, right? Because we've accumulated skills, capital, better lasers, right? The market has gotten more efficient at it. Um, so anyways, and so then, the, you know, I, I know you want me to kind of weave in the, the Atlas Shrug thing. I, so, yes, it's probably the second most influential book in my life. Um, now, she was definitely not a Christian. And so there were definitely parts of her work that I um, disagree with. But the main thing that Atlas Shrug taught me was free markets is more than just about e- efficiency. Because I think even a lot of liberals like would recognize that the free market is the most efficient Right. Maybe we just have to smooth out the edges, you know, and, and, you know, social safety net and, you know, to help the people who lose, quote unquote, in the free market system. But they know they're more efficient overall. But what I really took from her was free markets with property rights. And so therefore voluntary exchange. Right. I don't buy something from you unless I think I'm going to be better off giving up my money for it, you know. That's not just more efficient, it's moral. It's morally right, you know, and taking from somebody in order, you know, in order to alleviate some wrong that you perceive is not is not right. It's re- intervention and redistribution is nothing more than greed and violence masking as virtue. Um now I think she gets kind of a bad rap sometimes because people think she thought that greed and selfishness were virtues. But, you know, I kind of mentioned profit is not about selfishness. It's about self-interest, right? Capitalism, free markets is about acting in your own self-interest. Yeah. And I think maybe highlighting the difference between self-interest and selfishness, because I mean, that might sound the same to some people. Yeah. So I think selfishness, right, is you're totally focused on yourself and at the disregard of others, right? Right. Whereas self-interest, 
can mean I'm going to work do what's best for me, but I'm not going to disregard others. And so, for example, in capitalism, right, in free markets and voluntary exchange, the way I get you to give me your money is to make something that you want more than your money, right? When I go to Chick-fil-A, you know, I give them money because I know I'm going to be better off with that chicken sandwich than I am with that $5 in my pocket, right? Now, Dan Cathy and the income inequality between me and Dan Cathy just grew. But I don't care because I'm better off because I voluntarily gave him my money, right? Whereas selfishness is disregard and not caring for others. Now, I'm not saying that there aren't selfish people, right? I mean, that's not what I'm saying. But I think when you give power and force, like you, you know, you deem somebody worthy of, of using force, it only attracts more greedy and selfish people because if they're selfish, now they have the power to use the gun in order to achieve their selfish ambitions. And they don't have to produce anything for you. They right. just they just get to take it. Yeah. Yeah. And so, you know, she was talking about it. She was really talking about this idea that somehow governments are altruistic. And the market is greedy. You know, she, if you read it, she viewed what was moral was to like aspire to create and to act in one's own self-interest. And so just as a, you know, an example, as a Christian, I believe it's in my best self-interest, right, to pursue and have a relationship with God, right? Because my, my main end, right, the ends justify the means, my end is to glorify him and worship him. So. It's in my self-interest, right, um, to to do that. Whereas, you know, and then, of course, Christ calls me to be not selfish, right? And so self-interest with the right perspective is a good thing. Um, and so I think that kind of differentiates the difference. So. Yeah, yeah. I mean, we're all self-interested when we eat food because we're taking care of our bodies. Like, right. we have an interest in ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. Perfect. So, yeah, I would I would definitely recommend the book. I listened to it. Um, it's long. Yeah, it's really long. It's very but, long, and you just have to understand it's a fictional story that's used to explain philosophy. It's really not a fiction book. It's a philosophical book that's made through a fictional story. So if you're expecting the best, you know, character development, you're not going to get that. But yeah, how is, yeah. it's it's the most engaging philosophy book because it's at least built into a story to get points across. So, I think those are those are all of the questions that I had, and it's it's really helpful. And I think my big takeaway is it's kind of like you know, as a Christian, it, it can be very frustrating because that means a certain thing to a lot of different people. Like mm-hmm. if, if you talk to some, some like um, from somebody from Greenwich village in, in New York city and, and you said, I'm a Christian, they'd probably think Westboro Baptist church, mm-hmm. you know, the yeah. God hates fags people. And they'd be like, Oh, you're, you're just crazy. And like, no, you don't understand. There's, you know, the Orthodox and the Catholics and then the Protestants. And then in Protestantism, you have Baptists and Southern Baptists and Reformed Baptists. And, you know, you've got all of these variants and, and Christian doesn't really mean one thing. It means a lot of a lot of different things. Yeah. So I think my my struggle with with capitalism was that I didn't understand that there are lots of different aspects of it. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I think I, and maybe this is wrong, but I, I start to use free market when I refer to the type of thing that you're talking about, right. as opposed to capitalism, I still have all these negative associations with. For sure. Uh, yeah. I mean, I think I, I use that term all the time, right? Cause it, it does, you know, insinuate things like Jeff Bezos not paying property or any income taxes or whatever. Right. And, you know, that's, you know, Amazon using lobbying power to get tax breaks and all that kind of stuff. Like that's not free markets. That's, you know, if the government is picking a winner and loser, it's not a free market. Right. You know, um, you, you might've heard the term laissez faire, right. Which roughly means like to do, to let it be, to do nothing. Um, and that's really not what it means. Um, in essence, it really means creating laws that apply equally to everybody, right? That's what the rule of law means. And those are two totally different things. And, you know, I think when everybody's treated fairly or equally, you know, in the law, and then we have the opportunity to exchange freely, then we're all better off. And it's the most free. And I think it leads to the most human prospering. And so that's what it, it's what it used to mean. It's what it should mean. Unfortunately, it gets corrupted, you know, um, like all things. And, um, but I think for me, what made me so passionate about this was, you know, we created man in God's image. God gives us free will. He didn't create us as little robots. And so, you know, if he gives us free will, it shouldn't be our authority. We don't, if we don't have the authority to do it as an individual, we don't somehow have the authority to do it as a mob. And so we, and we have to respect those then, you know, to use the Thomas Jefferson words, unalienable rights. Right. And so if I can make by, you know, removing some license that allows somebody to get a job and work themselves off of poverty and government assistance programs, I mean, I, I don't see how that that's not a, a thing that we should celebrate, but, you know, stealing from others through is not virtue. And so it's only through voluntary that that can really be accomplished the best. Well, thank you very much. I appreciate you taking two hours of your time, which is better than the five we forecasted. <laughs> Happy to, I, I really enjoyed it. You know, we've had these types of conversations before. And so most people don't like, you know, talking about this stuff for especially as long as we have, but anybody who's always willing to talk like about real stuff, it's always a pleasure and I love it. So awesome. Well, thanks. To close this out, I want to reflect on one aspect of this, uh, this discussion that, um, I just want to flesh out a little bit more. There's so much that, that could be said. Um, but this is just the one thing I'm going to go with to close this out. So when, when Ron was talking about government's inefficiency, uh, particularly in being proactive and trying to basically control people's desires, control markets, those sorts of things, to control people's free will, in essence, you know, we know what is better for you. Uh, it reminded me of something that I was talking with, uh, with, about with a friend the other day. And he mentioned that Michael Crichton has this this really interesting piece, which I'll link in the show notes, where Crichton talks about the environment and government and um, all kinds of different things in this this speech that he gave at the Independent Institute. And it it just triggered for me that this is so much the same. See, what Crichton says is that 
hey, look, national parks, preserves, they suck. Or they, at least they did. I don't know if they still do. But they're terrible. When, when people meddle with the system and, you know, you try to control a certain population with, by introducing new animals and then those animals get out of control and you introduce something new. Uh, just, it's just like invasive species. When, when we meddle with things, the, the systems are so complex that we end up doing a worse job than by allowing things to kind of play out and balance themselves. Um, and so government seems just like in an, an invasive species sort of event to me, where the government is trying to um, play around with things uh, and, and messes up. You see so many examples of this. You know, down, down south we have kudzu, which is an invasive species, or I know lionfish are going crazy. Now, sometimes these, these species are introduced by accident, but other times people introduce them on purpose. You can research this, and there are a number of examples where there was some invasive species that was a problem, and so a government decided to introduce a predator of that invasive species from its homeland, and now you've got two invasive species, and that has an impact that you just can't, you just can't fathom. Like, you don't know what's going to happen. You can't predict it. Humans are complex systems, and when the government tries to manipulate these complex systems, not only is that arguably immoral to try to mess with people's wills, you know, take their, take their money by force at the edge of the sword, control what cups they can or can't drink out of in, in public, uh, which is, you know, from an example from, from an earlier episode I gave. But, you know, that, that's immoral, I think. But at the same time, it's also extremely ineffective and often creates more problems. And that's something that is kind of a theme here uh, in, in some of our interviews where we discuss how the government might fix some problems, but usually they're the problems of its own making. And so they are self-sustained in essence. You know, we need them because they exist. Uh, if they didn't exist, we wouldn't need them so much. Now go check out Crichton's interview or uh, speech. It's really good. He talks about Y2K and the ineffectiveness of government intervention, it, whereas if they would have just let the markets alone, it would have resolved due to self-interest and self-regulation, uh, all kinds of stuff. He, he gives great, great examples. Um, and, you know, this is the guy who wrote Jurassic Park. And so he, uh, Jurassic Park is essentially... Um, Probably, I, I don't know, I didn't hear this from him, but Jurassic Park is essentially, it seems, from Crichton's speech, basically Crichton's uh, political, um, environmental ideology played out. And what happens when humans meddle with things that are complex and beyond their control? What happens when humans try to play God? Either play God over nature or play God over their fellow man. That's all for now. So peace, and because I'm a pacifist, when I say it, I mean it. This podcast is a part of the Kingdom Outpost Network. Please check out the links below to find other great podcasts and content related to nonviolence and kingdom living.